The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm John Emmons, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for April 22, 2023. As the national security establishment reels from a recent leak by an American service member of highly classified finished intelligence regarding the war in Ukraine, I selected an episode from April 2021 in which Jack Goldsmith sat down with Lee Bollinger and Jeffrey Stone to discuss their new book, National Security, Leaks, and Freedom of the Press, The Pentagon Papers 50 Years On. They discussed the legacy of the Pentagon Papers, and the challenges of applying its precedents to the massive leaks and very different media landscape of our times. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 20th, 2021. I sat down with Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, and Jeffrey Stone, the Edward H. Levy Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago Law School to discuss their new book, National Security, Leaks, and Freedom of the Press, The Pentagon Papers, 50 Years On. We discussed the holding and legacy of the Pentagon Papers case, as well as some of the many challenges of applying the Pentagon Papers regime in the modern digital era that is characterized by massive leaks and a very different press landscape than the one that prevailed in 1971. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 20th, National Security, leaks, and freedom of the press. Thanks for joining me, Lee and Jeff. Can you just start off by telling us what the book's out? It's kind of an unusual collection. Well, the basic idea was to bring together a group of experts from different perspectives, uh, including from the national security world, from the world of journalism, and from legal scholarship to examine the state of affairs uh, that currently exists and how we got to this point in the 50 years that have passed since the Pentagon Papers decision. Uh, and the book includes uh, an introduction and a conclusion written by uh, Lee and me, a report that was prepared to summarize at the outset the state of the law with respect to these issues, then a series of essays by, a, as I said, a broad range of national security experts, journalists, and uh, legal scholars, and then a commission report uh, in which uh, seven of us, um, including Eric Holder and uh, John Brennan, sat down and discussed among ourselves what is the takeaway, what recommendations we as a group would have. And that's uh, another part of, of the book. Um, so that's the basic structure. Lee, do you have anything to add? 
Yeah. So Jeff and I had done a book a couple of years ago called The Free Speech Century. And in that book, which is also a collection of essays with a dialogue that Jeff and I do at the beginning and the end, that was to mark the uh, 100th anniversary of the first cases in the Supreme Court on interpreting the First Amendment. So uh, most people don't realize this, but there were no Supreme Court cases saying what free speech, free press mean under the First Amendment uh, until 1919. So this book marked that, the free speech century. Then, you know, we took this very, very significant part of that jurisprudence, Pentagon Papers uh, regime, which is more than just the Pentagon Papers, and wanted to try to focus on this particular issue. Circumstances have changed. Um, have they changed enough to change the result? That's a question we'll talk about here. But it, the idea was to take a major part of this jurisprudence and then really focus on that. The structure of the book was interesting. It sort of evolved in the ways in which Jeff and I have collaborated. And as you said, Jack, there, there was a mixture of uh, different approaches. So you have your essays, but you have essays from different points of view. That, I think, brings a kind of uh, strength of voice to it, no matter how much a single author tries to incorporate other perspectives. Very, very hard to get the real conviction that uh, people have from those points of view. A legal memorandum in the sense that outlines this. So if you want to know what the cases are and what the conventional and the most positive sense analysis is, that provides it. And then a group of people who come together and really try to look at all this and the perspectives and make recommendations. And they also are from different perspectives. And then Jeff and I offer what uh, what we think about this. Overall, I think the strength of the book is takes a real current major problem and really describes uh, how hard it is. Uh, it's just a very, very perplexing problem, both at the constitutional level, the policy level, the press level. So those are the motivations behind the structure of the book and what it is. Okay, I want to talk about what those problems are, and I want us to, to dive into the Pentagon Papers regime, but I just want to underscore what you said about the strength of voice in the book. I mean, you described, in general terms, having authors in these uh, different fields from the academy, from civil society, from journalism, and from the government, but I just want to underscore that you have every, header, every heavy hitter I can think of that I would want to hear from. Uh, on the government side, the current director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, has an essay, the deputy attorney general-to-be, Lisa Monaco, other former, uh, I'm not going to be able to list everyone, former senior officials like Keith Alexander and Michael Morell. On the academic side, you have Cass Sunstein, Louis Seidman, David Strauss, among many others. You have prominent journalists like David Sanger and Ellen Nakashima, who are national security reporters. And you have prominent people from civil society as well. So it's an extraordinary range of voices. And the collection of essays are very high quality. So I wanted to compliment you on that. So let's start off for a general audience and talk about, just remind us what the Pentagon Papers was. As you said, Lee, the Pentagon Papers regime is more than the case. But let's, can we start off with the case? Sure. So... You know, it can take quite a while. I'll just give a, a very brief summary. Jeff can, uh, uh, of course, add. Uh, but this is uh, 1971, and it's a, a volume, uh, 
large volume of um, history uh, that has been commissioned by Robert McNamara to look at the origins, um, how we got into the Vietnam War. And um, a person who is working uh, as a contractor with the U.S. government, uh, working for the U.S. government, uh, decides that this, um, this document, the Pentagon Papers, should be made public and hands it over to the New York Times uh, and the Washington Post, which go through this, decide that it's important for them to publish certain parts, uh, that the American public needs to, to know about this. The government uh, comes into court asking for an injunction to stop publication uh, on the grounds that this would uh, harm national security. goes very quickly to the Supreme Court. And there are a whole uh, mix of opinions. It's very hard to piece together uh, sort of what the overall uh, holding is. But the essential outcome is a decision by <clears throat> the majority of the Supreme Court that it is unconstitutional under the First Amendment to enjoin the press from publishing uh, classified information, even though it has been illegally taken from the government and know, and handed over to the press, with the press knowing uh, that it has been illegally taken. It, constitutionally protected, absent some uh, uh, very, very... Um, uh, significant evidence by the government that this will cause grave and irreparable harm to publish. There are surrounding cases uh, that make up the overall Pentagon Papers regime, uh, as I've called it, we've called it. Uh, classic problem of every democratic society, the government needs to operate in secret to some extent, it has a deep problem of over-classifying how do you get information to the public uh, that the public needs, that the government does not need to keep secret? And to what extent uh, should leakers be protected in having that information available? And to what extent should the press, if it gets a hold of that information, be free to publish? And to what extent should there be a constitutional right to part from that or in substitution for any of those rights to just go to court and to force the government to hand over information uh, that after an evaluation of the balance of interests, uh, a judge would find that uh, it should be made public or not. And the solution to the problem that the United States came up with, the Supreme Court came up with in Pentagon Papers and surrounding cases is a very unique and you just wouldn't predict. It's not something you would logically come up with uh, exactly. And that is there is no constitutional right to get the information in the first place, just to go to court and demand that the court evaluate the benefits and costs of revealing information. Leakers, um, so the government has the right to keep secrets uh, fully. Leakers uh, who hand over the information to the press uh, have no uh, constitutional protection uh, in doing that, even though the benefits of publication may outweigh the harms. And the press, uh, if it uh, does not participate, this is an open question, in the kind of purloining of the documents, but still knowingly uh, realizes that it's, um, it was taken illegally, uh, is free to publish uh, against an injunction. Uh, but there are many open, open questions like uh, once they publish, can they then be prosecuted? So, uh, so that's the summary I would give very quickly, Jeff. Um, I would just add a couple of observations about the case for those who 
weren't around then or weren't paying attention then. One of them is that it was an enormously important public case. That is partly because it was involved in the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and the Vietnam War. Everyone was aware of the case and it was all over the news and everyone knew what was, what was going on. So in that sense, it was very unique in terms of the Supreme Court uh, making such a decision. Second observation I'd make is that the, the decision was a six to three decision and the three dissenters made what is a very logical argument, which is that the Department of Defense was not paying any attention to this document, which had been written four years earlier under the directions of Robert McNamara. And uh, they didn't know what was in the document. They hadn't been paying any attention to it. Um, the Times had taken uh, several months to review the document before deciding uh, which parts of it it should publish and which parts it should not publish. The government only had literally a few days to respond to this. And part of what the dissenters argue is that, look, let's give the government some time to review this 7,000-page document, which presumably nobody's looked at in four years, to make the case that the publication of some of this information might well pose a clear and present danger uh, to the government. And the majority of justices basically took the view, nope, if you can't demonstrate it, you cannot enjoin it, period. And that was a pretty remarkable thing about the case. And whether that was because they trusted uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, or whether it was because they just said, uh, if they want to publish it, they have the freedom to do it. Maybe, maybe not. There could be a criminal prosecution later, but you can't enjoy it, enjoy it. And to me, one of the most intriguing aspects of it was that the government did not actually have a reasonable opportunity to review the document carefully, uh, examine the potential national security implications, and make the case to the court about what those dangers might be. And the majority of justices said, if you can't prove it now, you cannot enjoin it, you lose. Is that because of the kind of extraordinary power of the rule of no prior restraint? Is that the reason that they said that? I think yes. I mean, had the Times published the information and then been prosecuted after the fact, which indeed it wasn't, by the way, then uh, the government would have time necessarily to have made the case for this. So I think it is because of the very strong presumption against prior restraints that the majority of justices says uh, you cannot prevent them from publishing. But in, in addition to the ironies that um, Lee mentioned, uh, the other is that the New York Times had spent literally several months looking at this, and all of a sudden they say, we cannot be delayed for a moment. And the justices say, right, go for it. Jack, I think it's, um, you know, one of the deep, deep, complex puzzles of this area uh, that there is this, as you noted and Jeff just noted, this doctrine of no prior restraints. And uh, it's impossible to explain this in a in a brief podcast. It's just important to know uh, that uh, the Supreme Court jurisprudence beginning in the 1930s, but dating back to um, uh, really the origins of the First Amendment, had this notion that um, uh, any kind of effort by the government to stop publication before publication was really just unacceptable. And uh, so the doctrine of no prior restraints was uh, developed. It, it particularly applied and began with the notion of licensing. And one can understand why licensing of books and, and newspapers and so on is problematic. That's what the no prior restraints doctrine was, um, uh, was born in. 
But then it was extended in the 1930s, as we all know, to injunctions by a court that would stop publication. A lot of uh, complex analysis around whether that's a fair uh, extension of the no licensing. But that's what was at stake in uh, Pentagon Papers. The thing to note, I think, is that the more you think about Pentagon Papers as a no prior restraints problem, the more that opens up the idea that the Pentagon Papers case holding does not really apply in the context of a so-called subsequent punishment where the government prosecutes the publisher after the publication for publishing classified information. But the more you have that open, the less sort of willing the press is to, to publish because any rational editor is going to think, I'm great with uh, being free of any kind of injunction, but I really uh, do not want to end up uh, being prosecuted after the fact uh, for this, so let's not publish. I mean, so that's a dilemma in how you interpret the case as a real prior restraints case, and that's all, or as much more than that. Let me press you about that very question. Uh, Jeff, I think you and I have disagreed, at least by email, about whether criminal prosecution is allowed of the press after the fact. Can you just explain, because I read the Pentagon Papers case is just about prior restraint. I think that, you know, it's hard to add up the votes, but they didn't obviously forbid criminal prosecution and they probably didn't forbid criminal prosecution. But I I know that you have a somewhat different view on that. Can you just explain what the issue is in a little more depth? Well, I I agree with you that the court or at least some of the opinions in the majority, because I think every justice wrote an opinion of the case, so it's hard to figure out what the majority view is. But I, I think that the uh, justices in the majority, um, or at least enough of them to suggest that there weren't five to the contrary, did emphasize clearly the prior restraint element of the case and did not explicitly address the question of when would a, a, a criminal prosecution after the fact be permissible. On the other hand, and the Supreme Court has not had an occasion interestingly, to revisit that question um, in the year since the Pentagon Papers case. So in 50 years, they haven't had a a case that uh, required them to address that question in the particular context of the publication of uh, classified information of this sort. But my own view is that the court has come across the general perspective of First Amendment to accept the proposition that the standard that applies when the government attempts to criminally punish the publication or the speaking of ideas or information is clear and present danger of serious harm. And that's true regardless of whether we're talking about the Pentagon Papers or whether we're talking about somebody who's giving a speech that causes others to engage in violence or whatever. Um, And in fact, the court has never upheld a conviction since the Pentagon Papers applying that standard. There has not been a single case in which the court has said there is a clear and present danger of grave harm and therefore this speech could be prohibited. So although I agree with you that the Pentagon Papers case does not explicitly resolve the question of what standard would apply, I think it's pretty clear now that the clear and present danger test would apply today if this was a prosecution after the fact, and the government would have to demonstrate that the publication of the information did create such a harm. Now, since the court has never actually had to apply that test in a way that leads it to uphold a conviction, we don't know, in fact, what clear or present or grave means. Those phrases have been over the century of free speech jurisprudence have been interpreted in very different ways. 
So it's possible the court would uphold the conviction of the New York Times if they were prosecuted a year after the publication of the Pentagon Papers, if the government could demonstrate that the publication of that information had in fact produced a serious harm to American international relations or the ability to fight the war in Vietnam effectively. But the truth is, we don't know what those phrases actually mean because the court has never found the existence of a clear and present danger in the half century since the Pentagon Papers case. I would add, Jack, that if you look, if you look at this from a kind of uh, systemic approach, has this worked and why has it, why may it have worked? What is behind that? Part of what uh, one can say is, I mean, this is just a, a thesis, is that the ambiguity on the question uh, has played an important role, that the ambiguity on can there be a subsequent punishment. So what we know is that we're trying to achieve this incredibly difficult balance of protecting the government's right to operate in secret, which we absolutely need, with the uh, need of the public to know what the government is doing. And we know that in this world, the government frequently over-classifies, uses secrecy way too much, uh, and sometimes uh, abuses its power. So so there's a tension there, a balance that's needed and the like. And you can follow an approach like Britain and just say, well, that's a problem. It's up to the voters to vote out uh, elected officials and governments that they think have uh, been too secret. The press should not have any public role in this. Press is fine, but it uh, we shouldn't elevate it to a semi-governmental status of informing the, the public. So we've taken this different approach. And part of that approach is the government can't uh, enjoin, uh, but uh, we leave open the question of a subsequent punishment. And, and as the editors are thinking about what it is they should publish, can publish, etc., that will play into their minds, that ambiguity. And along with uh, several other ambiguities, like is our leakers uh, protected at all, etc., we end up with a system that one might say has worked. That is, we it's always hard to know what the um, world would have been like with a different system, but Jeff and I think the consensus is that um, this unique kind of way of approaching this problem in America with all its ambiguities has produced a, a cases um, or a, a history in which information that the public needed to know was out and the government was still able to operate in secrecy. So you can look at it not just as a what did the court hold and would it hold, but uh, how have we benefited from the ambiguities in the system that Pentagon Papers and other cases set up? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So I, I agree with that conclusion, maybe not for the same reasons. And I think it's especially obvious in the 50 years since the Pentagon Papers and especially in the 20 years since 9-11 that I would go further. I don't think that there's there may be legal ambiguity, whether Jeff is right or not, about these other developments and, and the possibility there being a very high bar for ex post criminal prosecution. It seems to me that after the Chelsea Manning leaks, the WikiLeaks, and especially after Snowden and the non prosecution of the press in light of that, and then the just massive continual publication by all sorts of outlets of very sensitive classified information on a scale I think we haven't seen before including of surveillance-related information that might be somewhat easier to prosecute than other forms of information. It seems to me that the Pentagon Papers norm or whatever you want to call it, whether it's related cases, it's grown into basically that at least, and we'll talk about the Julian Assange case, but at least for the New York Times and Washington Post of the world, that they can basically, I think that I think they're more emboldened than you suggested, Lee. And I quote in, in my essay, I quote David McCraw, who he said something slightly different later, but in a panel I was on with him, he said basically, and I'm paraphrasing, I can quote it if you like, but he said basically after the Manning leaks and the Snowden leaks, we just became more emboldened and we just, especially compared to the 1971 baseline, but also against the 2001 baseline of what the legal expectations were, they just didn't think the government was going to go after them. Isn't that a fair description of, and isn't there either a very powerful norm or isn't it almost inconceivable, given what we've been through, that the government would actually prosecute the press ex post for a leak of classified information, at least at the scale of Snowden or Manning? I mean, maybe if something was even more threatening to national security, but those, you know, the Snowden leaks were pretty consequential. So what do you all think about that? My sense is that the press does have a high degree of confidence at the moment that it would not be prosecuted. And, and part of the reason for that, I suspect, is that such a prosecution of an entity like the Times or the Post, at least, would be seen as so politically controversial and threatening to the nation's commitment to freedom of the press that they think they believe that government would be extraordinarily reluctant to put itself in that position barring the most extreme type of situation. And I also think that as long as we're talking about uh, entities like the Times and the Post, um, they are pretty responsible. Uh, several of the essays in the book, including one, for example, by Ellen Nakashima, talks about how the Post did deal with these issues and addressed with even government officials what the dangers were of publishing certain information. And in their view, at least, uh, were very responsible in not going beyond uh, what they published and exercise discretion not to publish things that really could seriously damage the national security. Now, people can disagree, of course, about how much harm uh, was inflicted here. But I think if we're talking about the Times and the Post, uh, they've demonstrated for the most part that they are serious about not wanting to hurt the nation. And therefore, they do take that responsibility seriously. 
Part of the problem we have now, of course, is that the Times and the Post are certainly not the only means of publication or communication that is available. And now we have things like WikiLeaks and, and everybody who's access to the Internet. And so the problem today is that the reality is we're not limited to only reasonably responsible, thoughtful and careful parts of the press. And that means we are going to see as we go forward, in all likelihood, ever greater less responsible publications of that information. And that's one of the issues that the book tries to sort out. So, I mean, this starts to go to the the heart of, of where we are now compared to where we were at the time of Pentagon Papers. And so, yeah, you ask the question, one asks the question, did Pentagon Papers come out the way it did because the main or exclusive publishers of classified information at that point we're very responsible people, institutions operating by a culture of, um, you know, norms of uh, objectivity and responsibility and patriotism and the like. And I'm referring to the Times and the Post. And we could live with a, a world in which the Constitution protected them against uh, prior restraints, certainly, and, and perhaps against subsequent punishments. Have we moved to a world in which um, the press, even that responsible part of the press, let's call it, uh, feels too powerful, too willing to uh, publish, which I think, Jack, your comments are heading towards, that they they may just have too much arrogance uh, about this. And that's one question. Another is the one Jeff just raised and you've raised, are there too many potential publishers now that uh, go across the spectrum of uh of responsibility. Uh, so that's a big question. Then the other side is, has the government become much more secret? And uh, there are all these um, points made in the essays about overclassification increasing, the amount of uh, classification itself going way, way up since 9-11, et cetera. So the, our problem is, both from a constitutional standpoint, legal reasoning standpoint, but a practical uh, standpoint of how the world works, uh, have the kind of conditions changed so much on either side of this that we need a, a new system? The really interesting part of working on this book to me is that all of that, all of the writers from every perspective were very sensitive to these questions of changing conditions. And yet I think it's fair to say that nobody is prepared at this point to say, Circumstances have changed so much, I'm so convinced that we should set aside the Pentagon Papers regime and come up with a new one. Yeah, I I agree with that. I didn't mean to imply that the press was arrogant. I just meant to say that the, the Pentagon Papers 50 years later is not just about prior restraints. I mean, the regime now is that they feel much more confident about publishing classified information in terms of legal risk. I'd also say that the fact that there are all these other outlets. So first of all, I think the mainstream press feels emboldened in the sense that they've been publishing more and more classified information that's more and more sensitive. I agree, and I've seen it done, that they take seriously their responsibilities to, to assess the harm. They make their own judgment. Maybe we shouldn't trust their judgment, but that's their call as to what to publish, and they often don't publish things that they think would harm the national interest. On the other hand, I know from talking to journalists and editors that given their competition from these other sites like WikiLeaks and the like, 
that they feel like if the information is going to, there's extra pressure and extra incentive to publish because it used to be that if the Times and the Post didn't publish it, it wouldn't be published. But now that's no longer the case. So there's there's extra incentive in addition to the lack less legal constraint uh, for them to publish. But I also agree with you on the other hand, and I'm here, I'm with Justice Stewart, that at the very heart of the problem is government secrecy and overclassification. And as you note, as, as all of the essays note, and as you note in the commission report, I mean, you alluded to some of the differences since the Pentagon Papers has been the, the digitalization of secrets. There's the internet, which spreads them quickly and it's very difficult to control. There is the massive growth in the secrecy bureaucracy in the government, a lot of it in the private sector, which is where a lot of the leaks come from. Uh, we're in endless war with 20 years of war with all of the kind of institutionalized secrecy that that brings. So there's just been such a huge and massive growth on the secrecy side that, you know, that's invariably going to lead to more leaks. But I also think that the press is reporting more of that. I actually am with you that I think our system as strange as it is with basically giving the press freedom to publish, but saying that the leakers don't have protection and there's no constitutional access to the information. I actually think it works pretty well. And it's remarkable how many senior national security officials in the essays, they don't really question that. I mean, they're more sensitive to the need for transparency than I think they were, would have been 20 years ago. So that's a whole bunch of comments. If y'all have any reactions to that. Well, I mean, I, I think I think those comments are all correct. And, and of course, one of the things that we don't know is what hasn't been disclosed. In other words, although a lot of information has been disclosed, it's probably a very tiny percentage of the actual information that is secret. And people who are inside the national security world do understand that there's a lot of stuff going on that has not been disclosed and that. Um, if it were disclosed, might create a lot of controversy about the various policies and practices that the national security community is pursuing. You know, one of the interesting sides here is that on the one hand, uh, it looks like a lot has been disclosed, but on the other hand, they understand, that is people inside that world, understand that it's probably just a very, very tiny fraction of what could theoretically be exposed and which would be problematic for the national security community, not only in terms of um, the national security, but also in terms of embarrassment and legality and questions about judgment. So I, I think their support of the current system is based partly on the fact that they know how much has not been exposed and that if it was exposed, might be very problematic for the um, performance of the national security world. So... I think, um, like Jeff, I, I agree, Jack, with your comments and assessment uh, of things. And Jeff is noting the the problem of lots of things that that in a ideal world of First Amendment would be public uh, because the public would need to know them in order to exercise uh, appropriate self government. I think there's also, in addition to that. I think there is also reflected in the essays from the national security people a sense that the security interests of the the legitimate security interests of the government are underappreciated by the press and by a broader public and not clear how deep that goes in the public mind but there there certainly comes through in these essays 
and certainly in your own essay, Jack, a sense that we think is really important to continue Pentagon Papers. We understand the check on the government that the press plays. We're with you on on the need of the public to know what the government is doing. And yes, there's too much overclassification, but but there are serious things that have been leaked and caused major problems. And we are not going to uh, stand by and, and just say everything that is published uh, is good, the system has worked perfectly and the like. So so I think there is, a, a on the national security side, a, a kind of warning about the seriousness of this. I think from the journalist perspective uh, in the essays and the journalists we all know, there is a greater confidence in the professional journalistic community in the process of getting uh, information and making sound and responsible judgments about what is ultimately published. So I think those come through very strongly, those different perspectives in the essays. They do. My experience is, for what it's worth, that the press is overconfident about its ability to judge and that the government is overconfident about the importance of the secrets and Maybe that's why the system works decently well. Jeff, I wonder if you if you care to comment on, so you were someone who, one of the leading First Amendment scholars in the country, and you kind of dove into the world of classified information when you were on the President's Review Group. And I'm wondering how, if so you saw kind of inside how things worked and you had a lot of access to secrets and to how the government was operating. And you, y'all wrote, you and, and the other people on that group wrote a you know, very balanced report. But I'm wondering how that, if at all, influenced your view of these issues. Well, it was a fascinating experience. And I learned uh, a lot about things I knew nothing about. I was the, the person of the five members of the group who probably had the least, clearly had the least experience with the inside of the national security world when uh, President Obama appointed that review group. Uh, which was pointed to review, in particular, uh, the consequences of the Snowden revelations and and beyond. I guess I I would say that the thing that most impressed me, frankly, and almost all of our attention was focused on the NSA, although we did have interactions with the FBI and CIA and others, was that I was impressed with the NSA. I, I came into this knowing really next to nothing about it that any layperson wouldn't know. And I came away with the sense that they were quite serious about their responsibilities, that they were pretty thoughtful about it. They may at times have made judgments different from the ones that I would have made with respect to the the importance for confidentiality of certain particular information, denying the public the opportunity to get to know it. But basically, I, I, I found them very impressive. And they they were very professional and they were not cops. Their basic mentality was sort of into the, the tech side of things. So I, I, I found that very encouraging and very impressive. I do think some of the problems I, I came away from it appreciating was first um, the lack of real oversight of what these agencies are able to do. I mean, there is a pro forma congressional oversight of their activities, but it's not very sophisticated and uh, it's not very effective. And so one of the problems I think that, that should be addressed is that there should be much greater in, inside government evaluation, uh, not only by the agencies themselves, but by 
members of Congress or by separate organizations that are created inside the government to review these things on a regular basis. Because I think that is one of the problems. When you are the one involved in doing the, the investigations, you do tend to err on the side of the investigation rather than the constraint. And I think there's not enough internal evaluation of that. That's certainly lacking. But I did come away with a much more positive view of the NSA than I expected to when I went into this. So we've discussed how the, the, one of the themes of the book, or at least of y'all's view, is that the system, the Pentagon Papers regime, as odd as it may be, has worked pretty well, it seems. I mean, that's a broad general normative judgment, but it's worked pretty well and for the country, given the changes that we've had. But you have a commission report at the end, and you make some recommendations for how we should change the regime. Can you talk about some of the more important ones? And maybe you should tell us who was on the commission, if you can, and and how you went about your work, and then what were some of the most important recommendations? So the uh, the members of the commission were uh, Jeff and um, me, and uh, Eric Holder, John Brennan, uh, Anne Marie Lipinski, Kathleen Carroll, uh, and Steve Cole. So obviously, people from the top of the journalism profession and the top of the um, government. The, the commission made a number of recommendations at the level of amending, changing the Espionage Act of 1917-1918, which is the governing legal standard, the law that governs uh, these kinds of problems. Several of them have to do with what Jeff was referring to, and you've referred to, Jack, is the internal structure of uh, classification, the process, the checking on it, uh, double checking on it, uh, uh, trying to stop the bias in the decision making to classify and make it more uh, balanced. So the number of recommendations uh, about that. Then there's this really, really hard problem. And that problem is, uh, should Pentagon Papers in its full sense that we've been talking about, and not only against prior restraints, but um, against subsequent punishments, should that uh, be extended broadly to every person, every citizen who might be uh, in possession of classified information and be able to uh, publish it now on the internet or elsewhere? Or should it be limited to some notion, some idea of the press? And uh, should it be for all citizens? Should it be for a subset of the, the press? That's really complicated under Supreme Court decision-making, decisions on the First Amendment, really complicated as a matter of uh, policy and law. How do you make the distinction? And, and the commission moved towards the idea that those institutions or even individuals who can show a certain level of general press-like behavior, informing the public on a regular basis, etc., should be entitled to a shield against prosecution. And it doesn't reach the question at the constitutional level, uh, what should the First Amendment do, but more at the statutory level, and makes note of the fact that in other laws and other practices in the government, we do draw regular distinctions between, quote, the press and others. 
and we can do so in the context of a statute. Uh, so there are other parts, but um, Jeff, I'll turn those over to you. Yeah, so so one of the, the challenges, given the enormous breadth today of the, quote, press, is that, as I noted earlier, although you could trust the Times and the Post, for example, to be responsible, even if they may make mistakes, it's now the case that it's possible to uh, make public to a, a vast national and international audience leaked information by entities that do not have that degree of expertise or responsibility and should the Pentagon Papers uh, apply to them. The Supreme Court has been very reluctant up to this point to define who is the press for purposes of the First Amendment. Um, they had a case around the same time as the Pentagon Papers case called Brandsburg versus Hayes, where the question was whether the First Amendment granted a journalist a journalist privilege to refuse to disclose uh, the source of information uh, when asked to testify in a legal proceeding. And the court rejected the recognition of such a First Amendment privilege. And one of the factors that clearly affected the court's thinking was that it would then have to decide who gets to assert that privilege, who is the press and who's not the press. And the justices just did not feel at all comfortable being in that position. But interestingly, uh, 48 states uh, now have journalist privilege laws in which they, in a statutory format, um, define who is the press for purposes of being able to assert the privilege. And although the Supreme Court understandably would still be reluctant to do such a thing, it might make sense for the government to pass laws, the United States government, for example, to pass laws that identify from a statutory standpoint who the press is, not for the sake of limiting the rights of the press, but for the sake of giving special dispensations to leakers who give information to those entities um, on the theory that let's, let, if they're going to leak anyway, let's get them to give it to places who we have at least a reasonable degree of trust on. And that would be one possible approach that I think would be quite interesting. Another issue we talked about in the recommendations is uh, there should be better procedures inside the national security world for individual employees or contractors to raise questions about whether certain information should be made public. That is, there should be uh, entities within the national security world consisting not only of, of full-time uh, experts in that world, but also uh, some members who come from outside that world to whom employees can present the question, I think this information should be public. Um, why doesn't the NSA or the CIA make it public? And we recommend that they can even be able to do that anonymously so they're not chilled in their willingness to raise those questions. But we do think that the national security world could do a better job of giving its employees a process in which they can internally raise questions about whether things should not have been classified and should be public and then allow the internal world to make better judgments about those questions than they're able to do right now. And then, Jack, there are two other areas, as you know. Uh, one is, should leakers have any protection? And the answer is um, no. But that the sort of modulation of, of government uh, uh, response should range from, uh, of course, firing to misdemeanors to um, felonies, but no um, uh, criminal. I mean, it's a, a more nuanced approach to dealing with leakers, but not extend uh, a, a sort of balanced 
you know, is it better to have the information public than not? So that the how to treat leakers is one other area. And the other one discussed is the intersection between the press, the journalists, and the leaker. And uh, when should the press, uh, what is the line where the press crosses over into criminal behavior themselves by uh, trying to facilitate the, the leak? Should simply asking a leaker to get the information constitute uh, criminal uh, action? And the commission's view is no, that's standard journalistic behavior. Uh, but that's another point of really interesting and important uh, tension. So it seems the Assange case, which we haven't talked about and which likely won't come to fruition, I guess, clearly raises this question about what is the press. And as you note, and as the essays note, there's so many sources of, I mean, infinite numbers, sources of publication in the United States and around the globe and so many ways for information to get out that it really is a, a hugely important question about where and how that line gets drawn. The second thing I'll say is that, Jeff, in response to the recommendation about the government being more responsible internally, the problem, as you and the other essays note, is that most of the secrecy world is not really in the government. It's in the private sector. And that is so much harder. It's so much harder to impose rules and norms there. And so many of the problems, I think, have come less from the government itself than from contractors. I want to close by asking about the last couple of paragraphs of the book, which is uh, the end of your closing statement essay. And you you basically end with a question about whether, given the way secrets are kept now, given digitalization, given the internet, are there going to be ever more leaks of ever more important information that does ever more harm to national security and in that world, can the Pentagon Papers regime, as we've described it, survive? And you seem to end kind of on a pessimistic note. And I just wonder if that's a, if that's a, the right reading or how you'd like to comment on that. Well, I, I think that that we and most of the participants do have a concern about the changes that have occurred in the national security world, including, as we as we noted, the vast expansion in the number of individuals, including literally millions of private contractors who have access to classified information and the ability of individuals and organizations, not the mainstream press, to make this information available uh, worldwide, have created serious dangers to national security. My sense is that although the leaks that have occurred thus far have been, some of them have been harmful to the national security, none of them has been at the magnitude that has really caused or required a, a fundamental rethinking of this. And a lot of people are thinking about it, of course, after Snowden and, and, and Assange and so on, um, and Manning. But um, I don't think we've had the kind of true uh, crisis that would really require uh, a serious rethinking. But I think almost everyone recognizes that the, the situation we have that the Pentagon Papers created and as the world has evolved is a very weird one. And it's not clear that it is ultimately the right one. But any alternative that people propose winds up seeming to have more problems than, uh, than advantages, except for rel relatively minor tinkering. So um, I think this is a, something we need to think about and continue to think about and hope we don't have the kind of truly world-class disaster that at least theoretically could occur. 
But at the moment, I think there isn't the sense that we've we've encountered that at a, at a degree of concern that requires a complete rethinking of the Pentagon Papers regime. And I would say that Jeff and I were not intending to be pessimistic, but I think we're sort of trying to express the the reality that this is a very, very significant set of problems. And that from our point of view, at this moment, it would be a pity to abandon the Pentagon Papers approach. It would be a pity. But if we're pressed, and that by hard cases, uh, my own instincts would be to go towards uh, protection for some subset of the world of responsible press, as difficult as that is to define, because I think the benefits are tremendous of having that check. But it would come at the cost of, of having to do what Jeff rightly noted the court has been reluctant to do, which is to give some rights under the First Amendment to some parts of the citizenry, in this case, uh, an institution of the press, possibly some individual. And and that reluctance is based on a sense that the First Amendment uh, should be there for everybody and we shouldn't be drawing these fine distinctions. So I I'm, I'm, would be more prepared to go in that direction, nevertheless, uh, of special rights for a, quote, responsible press of some notion. And I think Jeff would be less so. And that tension is is really, I think, what also gives the book some real power. But I think it, it, we ended up with, it would be a pity if, if at this moment what has worked reasonably well should be abandoned. So we're out of time. Thanks so much. This is a definitive book on this question circa 2021, 50 years after the Pentagon Papers case. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for having us, Jack. Thanks, Jack. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pins, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.